When we were in South Dakota, we met a, a family that lived near us, and they had a, a, a daughter, uh, my daughter's age. And, um, and shortly, like just a couple months after that, she, the wife um, got pancreatic cancer, and two months later, she was gone. And uh, it, it, was, it was really a shocking thing for, for them, for us, just to, to have that happen so quickly and getting to know them, building a friendship, and then seeing her depart. And so after that, we had, uh, we had the husband and daughter over like every week. And uh, I remember the husband telling me, he said, you know, he had a, he had a campground that he, he ran. And he said, I just don't feel like doing any of it anymore because... It's like every, such a big part of why I was doing it was for her. And now she's gone. So what's the use of doing anything more? And I don't know, maybe you come today and, and that's where you're, what you're feeling. You're feeling like there's no hope. There's no reason to keep going. You may see these things in front of you that you could do, but you say, what's the use? Well, I think the apostles and the disciples in this, in this text might have felt something of the same thing, right? Because they said, we thought he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. But now our hopes are dashed. And then the question becomes, is there any hope at all? Is there hope for Israel? Is there hope for us? Is there hope for them? And the answer of our text is a resounding yes. Even when we feel like there's no hope, even when we feel like not going forward, there is hope. And there is reason to go forward and there is reason to expect good things in the future. And that's what the, Jesus taught the disciples in that day. And it's the same lesson that he wants to teach us today. So let's see that by considering how they came to understand from Jesus the truth of the resurrection or the fact of the resurrection. And then secondly, we'll see how Jesus explained the meaning of the resurrection. So first, let's consider knowing the fact of the resurrection. So what was happening is that the, the women who had followed Jesus and served him had gone to the tomb to anoint him and to put perfume on him and, and spices to, as a way that they served the dead and showed honor to the dead. But when they got to the tomb, the tomb was empty. And there were the clothes lying there. And they didn't know what to, what to think. And then the angels appeared to them, got an angelic message to tell them, here's what's happened. Jesus is alive. He's not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. And so they went and they told the other disciples who were all gathered together. And they didn't believe him. They just said, this is nonsense. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They did not, that's not how they thought. And they didn't get it, even though he had told them over and over again. And so it's in that context that they're thinking about trying to process what's going on. The two of the disciples left, and they went to a town called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And um, as, they were, as they were walking, um, they were discussing what had happened and trying to help each other process the loss of Jesus and there, Jesus shows up, and he's walking right next to them. But they were kept from recognizing that, him. And so, we say, by whom? By Jesus, by the Lord. 
because he wanted, in a way, to keep them from recognizing him so that they might recognize him better later on. And so as they come, as they come along, he asks them, what are you all talking about? That's the original of what Jesus said. What are you all talking about? And, um, and they, 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 they stood still, their faces were downcast, and they said, who are you that you don't know what's even going on here? All the things that have happened. And they said, what things? And you get a good sense of what they were seeing as you read verses 19 through uh, 24. Because they described it as, as the chief priests and rulers handing him over to be put to death. But he said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And so notice he says, we had hope. They weren't thinking that that hope was still alive. However, they had heard a report from the women. They were there. And they had heard that report. And, and then some of them had gone to the tomb. And they had found it just as it was. As the women had said. And Jesus' response is very interesting to them. He says in verse 25, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so what he's saying there is, you all know the Old Testament. And that's what the Old Testament said from beginning to end was that this is going to happen just this way, in addition to the fact that I already told you. So he's like, why don't you get this? What is going on? You know, and one times, one of the things that's, that's cool about the Bible is that, uh, you know, it's so, it's not, it's not like so many other documents that you find where people try to gloss over the weaknesses and failings of the heroes, of the characters there. It's all right out there. And, and it, it seems like this would, would show, like, why can we trust these guys? They didn't even get what Jesus was saying. But it shows the weaknesses. It shows that it's not a book that human beings would have written, especially at that time. But it's a book of, from God himself, where it's plain, and it tells it exactly how it is with all the human weaknesses and foibles. However, one of the things we don't want to do when we read this is to say, man, those people were so dumb. I'm glad we're not like that anymore. Because I think, it, I think we need to, to say, like, it was interesting. I was having a conversation with a friend, and it's like, yeah, we really need to read the scriptures and pray. That's as we were talking about this. And I said, but these people read the scriptures and prayed, right? These were not heathen people who didn't have anything to do with God. And they still didn't get it. And so that shows us that we've got to watch out that we don't read the Bible with our own lens and just let our own uh, prejudgments, our own preconceptions, our own culture inhibit us from seeing what the Bible teaches us. And, especially for this, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, show us what we're not seeing. You know, don't just read it over and over again and just see the same thing. Say, Lord, teach me. Keep surprising me. Keep filling me with wonder. So, and a side note. So that's what he said to them. And then he went in and he says, okay, now I'm going to show you all those things. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. And, and so they arrive at the place where they were going to stay. Jesus acts, you know, like he's going on or moves forward. 
and they invite him to come in. And then they have the meal. He breaks the bread. He prays. And then at that point, in the breaking of the bread, Jesus is revealed to them. And then they finally realize, this is Jesus. And they said, after all, when we heard the word, did our, not our hearts burn within us? And so immediately they get up and say, we got to tell this to the other disciples. And so they go back. And there's all the disciples gathered together. And so he, Jesus then, as they're talking about it, they, say, they, they realize Peter had already seen Jesus. And now they, they come and so say, we've seen him too. He's really, he's really alive. And then Jesus appears to them. And what does he say to them? Peace be upon you. Peace be upon you. That's the word of the resurrection, that we don't have to fear, that we don't have to stay in our guilt, that it's a declaration of peace between God and in the world. We don't have to be in so much anxiety because Jesus has risen from the dead and conquered death. Amen? Can we say amen in Presbyterian Church? Okay. And so... Then, then they said, but, but even though Jesus appeared in the middle of them, they still were like, and even though they had seen it, and they said, yep, he's definitely alive, he comes there, and they say, nope, this is a ghost. And they, they don't know what to say. They're just filled with amazement and joy, and their, their heads are spinning around. They don't know what to say. And so Jesus says, come over here, touch me. When they thought of a ghost, they thought of a spirit, the spirit of a human being, being separated from the body, as it happens when we die, and then they might, uh, in, having some sort of appearance. But... Uh, he's saying, come here, touch, touch me, see the wounds. They're right here. This is not just a spirit. This is not just a spirit appearing to you. This is the real flesh and blood. And they still didn't get it. So he said, all right, all right. Does a ghost eat food? <laughs> so that's the question. Give me some food. He eats the food. Finally, they're convinced. And what he tells them also, again, is that they should have gotten what was said. He goes back and he tells them now what he had told the other disciples. Look at verse 44. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. That is, in, in the days before the, the crucifixion and resurrection. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so they finally got it. So, now they knew. Jesus is risen from the dead. So what does that mean? So that's the question. I want you to consider five things about the meaning of the resurrection that Jesus teaches us in this passage. So the first thing is, and, if, and just, just FYI, just in case you don't know, there's in, in the bulletin, there's a series of, there's like an outline of the sermon, and I have like those five points there, and that might be of help to you, and, um, and then there's blanks that you can fill in, and hopefully I'll actually give you the word that's supposed to go in there. So number one, the resurrection's meaning was described long ago. When we talk about the meaning of the resurrection, it wasn't something that was, that was not told before. It was something that is in accordance with what we have in the Bible, which for us we call the Old Testament. And so what I want us to consider just very briefly is what might Jesus have said to the, to the disciples on the way to Emmaus? What might he have said further to them in that room when he was talking about the Old Testament? Well, he might have gone right back to, to the beginning, to Genesis 3.15 where when God was actually talking about the coming Messiah to the serpent, to Satan, he said, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to crush your head, but you are going to crush his heel or injure his heel. And so there you see a sense that there's going to be a victory, but it's a victory that will come through some suffering. So there it is, right at the beginning. 
He might have also pointed them to the types of the Old Testament, or the pictures in history that God established, meaning the people that were there. They all kind of went through the same pattern. And it was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. It was sort of a, a visible demonstration of what Jesus was going to do, giving some sense of it, each one a sort of different flavor. So, for example, Joseph had to go down to the prison and then be raised up to the heights. David, when he was, when, before he became the king, had to wander and suffer and hide in caves and go into the ground, as it were, before he came up. And you could go on and on about that. Jesus might have gone to the Psalms and, and considered what they said about Jesus because all the Psalms are about Jesus. That's one thing we're going to see um, this summer. But he might have quoted to them what Peter's quoted on Acts 2. Maybe Peter got the idea from a conversation here. Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Now he says, but David, his body decayed. We know where his tomb is. So clearly he's talking about someone else, and, that's, and that is Jesus. Or Psalm 22, which begins with the, the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then changes after a few sections to say, then I will declare your name to my people and the assembly I will praise you. The suffering and then the glorification. Or he might have gone to the prophets and described the many prophecies of our Lord, but maybe none as clear as that which is in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, where Isaiah said, Though the Lord make his life an offering for sin, like a sacrifice, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 10. And so, he's going to be an offering, but then he'll live many days after that, even though he's been a sacrifice. So, very remarkable prophecy. And so, Jesus was saying, this is, it's not just the first, the New Testament isn't the first time we talk about the meaning of the resurrection. It's in the Old Testament as well. Second, the resurrection entails worldwide transformation. Notice how the disciples on the road to Emmaus described what Jesus, what they were expecting Jesus to do. Um, they said, we thought that he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And he was the redeemer of Israel, and he is the redeemer of Israel. However, he's not only the redeemer of Israel. That's too small a thing for someone so great. But he's going to be the savior to the ends of the earth. And so what he tells them in verse 48 or, or, um, or verse 47, is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So the redemption is not just for Israel, it's for the whole world, befitting the glory of Jesus. So how does the world change? The world changes by finding out about Jesus and God working through that message. His power to heal, his power to redeem, his power to restore. Third, the resurrection empowers God's people to be agents of transformation. Here he says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. So how are they going to find out about Jesus? They're going to find out about Jesus because the disciples that he's talking to, they are going to go tell people about it. They're going to be witnesses to it, and that's how God's going to change the world. 
And you could see, you know, that God is doing this to this day. I mean, we're a long way removed from the apostles. But it's because someone told them and someone told them and someone reached out to us and, and on and on. You could trace it all the way back. And that's why we're here today. And that's what God is still doing. You see it in our congregation. And people reaching out all the time. I hear the stories all the time. We saw a great example of it when we were able to do last week together in building the sheds of hope and reaching out to those families who had lost um, homes in the fires. It was an attempt to say, we want to show the transforming power of Jesus in word and in deed. But you know, one of the things you find is, you know, we all got busy lives. We all got things to do. Um, so how do we get the power to do it? One thing Jesus says is because I'm risen, you're going to get a gift. Verse 49. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city. Don't go out and be my witnesses until you have been clothed with power from on high. So if we ask, you know, how can I get the strength to keep reaching out, to keep serving, to keep doing things when it's disappointing? Power from on high. That's what the resurrection means. We don't have to just look at the resources we have and say, can I do that? Oh, we have so much more. We have power from on high. And then fourth, the resurrection brings blessing to the world. Sometime after Jesus had met with the disciples, which no, was now 40 days later, um, Jesus went out with his disciples of, to a town called Bethany, which is just one of the, like, the suburbs of Jerusalem. And when he, in verse 50, it says, When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. And then, while he was blessing them, he is taken up into heaven. So if you picture Jesus ascending into heaven, you need to see him not just like sitting there like this, you know, beam me up. But it's, no, he's there with his hands up, with blessing on his people, and they're seeing that, you know. So this is, and the reason why is because Jesus is the great high priest. In the Old, in the Old Testament, when the priest, the priest would do animal sacrifices as an atonement for the sins of the people, because they had sins just like we have sins. And, but that, that wasn't sufficient to cover their sin. It was pointing forward to Jesus. However, it was showing that, that was, they were really going to be forgiven. And so when they came out of the holy, holy, holiest place, then they, they went out and what did they say? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And when they said, may, may the Lord do this, it's not like, you know, we hope that he'll do it. But we're not really sure. It's just like, it'd be nice if the Lord would, would bless us. Or we could do it with the Lord's help. It's declaring what is definitively going to happen because of the sacrifice that has made. So for everyone who has faith in that sacrifice, looking forward to Jesus, and as now us looking past to the actual sacrifice that atones for sin, that blessing is certain and sure. So when we pronounce the blessing, which I well, sometimes use the word ironic blessing, it's not because it's ironic, it's because it's from, it's the same one that Aaron gave, who was the first high priest, and those who followed him declared, this is what will happen because of the atonement that will take place and now has taken place. So what this means now is that because of human sin, curse has come upon the world. 
So why are things so messed up in the world? It's because of our sin. But what Jesus is saying that, no, we're turning that back now. That's going to start to change. Here's a blessing. And I'm sending it out all over the world. The resurrection brings blessing to the world. And then Jesus, after that, ascends into heaven. And he goes up into heaven. Why does he stay with his people? Well, he's going to do three things. Um, One is, he goes before the Father and he argues our case. Now, if he's going to argue our case on the basis of our merits, um, he wouldn't have a real good argument. In fact, he couldn't, even he couldn't succeed to say we deserve heaven. We deserve eternal life. We deserve forgiveness. He argues his merits as ours received by faith. And so if we sin, we all sin, we know that we have an advocate with the Father who's taking up our case and is certain to win, even though in and of ourselves we don't deserve it. And then, secondly, he's reigning over the world. He's exalted to be king right now. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's happened now. He's already exalted. He's, he's reigning over this world and reigning over the nations. And through his people, he's gradually changing the world and will complete it when he comes again. And then, thirdly, he gives his spirit. Because it's not just, it's not just his people and their power and their resources It's him working through his people by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to do things that we could never do of ourselves and never would do and never would want to do. He enables us and empowers us so the world begins to be changed and we begin to be changed and we see the power of Christ coming into this world. So in answer to our prayers, we see the kingdom coming and his will beginning to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's how the resurrection brings blessing to the world. And then, fifth, the resurrection causes joy and praise to God. So after they get all this, what's the response? Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And one of the things, it was interesting, I saw on Twitter this morning, one of a, a friend of mine is a pastor, was saying, our presbytery needs prayer because we need more joy at this time. And, and I would say that's true for every presbytery and every church. We need more joy. Because, you know, one of our big jobs as human beings is to find joy in our creator and all the good things that he's done. Like joy needs to be a high priority. And we, we could talk for a long time about what that means. But just let's take that for the moment. And when we see the great works of God, particularly that benefit us, like what Jesus did, that should cause us joy. And then that should cause us to take that joy, that emotion that's in our heart, and give it words in praise to God. And that's what happened here. And that's what it should do for us. So the resurrection means, finally, joy and praise to God. So let us rejoice. Let us praise the Lord. Amen.